You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha! In my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Hello and welcome to May's Forest Ramble. Um, the season is still curtailed, but in the meantime, we hope you've been enjoying our trips down memory lane. Uh, many of them do seem to be 90s away matches, but, uh, you know, I guess that's when they were happier times. Um, I'm joined today by the Maradon in the Midlands. Hi there. Hi. And by Stephen Topless. Hello. Hello. Uh, thanks for joining us. Um Okay, let's start off with the current situation uh, at Forest and for the Football League in general. It looks as though there's a definite um, mood that the EFL want the championship to continue, uh, even though Leagues 1 and 2 have been suspended. And it looks as though the Premier League also would prefer that to happen so that promotion and relegation issues can be decided in the normal way. Um, so the preferred option is to continue. Um, Stephen, are you happy with that? Yeah, I'm happy with that. I think that's the the fairest the fairest way to settle the season for everybody, whether you're at the top or the bottom. Um, the caveat to that is I would only want the matches to resume and the season to finish if it was completely safe to do so. Um, if if it's not, then we would have to come up with another option. But if there's a way of seeing out the season and getting it completed, and that's behind closed doors, that, I think that's a good thing. Okay. Maradon the Midlands, what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've been swinging over the past couple of weeks um, from sort of wanting it to go ahead and, and then thinking, well, is it really worth it? When the suggestion came up that the Premier League games would have to take place at neutral venues... I was pretty much against that. And I thought, well, if, if that's going to be the case, I don't see the point in actually completing the, completing the season. Um, I think if it's not your own gay, your own home ground, it's, it just loses some of the um, 
integrity and the uh, the fairness of the competition. Uh, but I mean, that seems to have gone a bit quiet last week or so. So maybe if if, if it can go on on your own home grounds, it's a home and away situation. And they can do it with sort of testing and everything. It's not going to be 100% safe all the time, but footballs are going to be safer than the vast majority of the public that are going to go back to work over the next few months. So if it can be done that proviso, I think, yeah, we should go for it. Okay. Um, Does it make much difference, Marad, on the Midlands about neutral venues if there's no fans there anyway? I think so. It's, It's still a home and away situation is people have their home home grounds and, and it just I think it just it, it would help but just doing it at neutral venues I, I don't see what what the advantage of that is they're talking about it's lots fans gathering but I mean for people clubs like Manchester United and Liverpool they've got fans all over the country so they, they're going to turn up to any neutral venue wherever it is and I think we've got to give people a bit of credit. I'm, I mean, there's always a few idiots, but I'm sure the vast majority of people would know not to turn up to grounds. Okay. What about the um, whole argument that we talked about in the in the April podcast about you know actually basically having an Olympic Village type setup so that it minimises travel and everything? Yeah, I mean, I think for each individual squad would have to have their own sort of environment at their own hotel place. Um, but I don't, that that's not the way it seems to be going at the moment. At the moment, players seem to be going back to their own families and um, just having a regular test every every week or so. The logistics of having like an Olympic village situation, I think it's just too complicated for people to do. Um, and sort of the staff, the the staff, support staff you need to run the hotel and everything. And I think it's just way too complicated. So they're going to just try and do it from their own homes, I think. Uh, Stephen, um, thinking about what you said in terms of if it's not safe to continue to come up with alternatives, well, for Leagues 1 and 2, it looks most likely, although it hasn't been voted upon yet, that it's going to be some kind of points-per-game system. Um, I guess there's always going to be some winners and losers, no matter what happens, but um, I'm thinking that points-per-game is probably the, the safest way of doing things, don't you? Yeah, I think it's... Um... In, in the interest of fairness, that would be uh, the most representative way of looking at, of trying to paint a picture of how the season would finish. Um, if you look at how it's been potentially worked out for Leagues 1 and 2, the final standings are not a million miles away from where teams would be finishing anyway. So it doesn't cause a massive disparity in, in placings or, or fairness. So, um, if they were to apply that to the championship, I think that would be, I, I don't think teams would be, you know, kind of really put out by it or you'll still get Leeds West Brom <clears throat> top two. The playoffs will be around about the same and the same for the relegation spot. So I, I think that would be a, a reasonably fair way of, of finishing things if, you know, it's not safe to to start playing football again or, we start to play football and we realise it's not safe and we have to put it on hold again. Okay. Married on the Midlands, did you want to come in there? Um, no, but I mean, I just don't think the points per game is, is that fair, actually. It's, it just assumes so much that we've seen it every season. There's always a late run from some teams and, and I, was, I think you were talking about League One 
from last season. The, the teams that were in, in sort of the bottom three positions this time uh, last year in the league table ended up managing to pull themselves to safety. And I think really unfair on Charlton this year. I think they've just dropped into the bottom three in, on the last game, game day, match day. So for them too, I think they it'd be really unfair. I think the, the main problem is that is with leagues one and two is a finance. They get so much of their money from uh, gate receipts that they just simply can't afford to uh, put the matches on and pay for the uh, testing required. Although the sums involved are relatively small if you look at it from a Premier League perspective. I mean, if there was an ideal situation, I'd, I'd like to see the Premier League just donate the money as a solidarity thing to let them complete their seasons as well so they could get players tested safely and just for the whole integrity of the whole league I think that would be an ideal situation and it wouldn't cost the Premier League a great deal of money I've heard something about £5 million maybe to do complete leagues one and two which when you think of how much money the Premier League have is, is, is a drop in the ocean yeah, and that's that's uh, that's quite sobering when you put it in those terms. I mean, what's very clear is that leagues one and two are different because in leagues one and two, you their clubs are dependent upon the gate receipts, so uh, they're the main source of revenue. Whereas in the Championship, uh, that's uh, it's much more even. And of course, in the Premier League, uh, the gate receipts are just a drop in the ocean uh, in that sense because most of the money comes from television. So it's a very uh, very different set of a, set of uh, circumstances. Now, what is uh, looking apparent is that regardless of whether it's points per game or whether it is um, Forrest actually continuing the season along with the other teams in the Championship, there's a good chance that Forrest are going to be in the playoffs. Um, I think worth saying to start off that, you know, that would be a good achievement, as we've discussed before. But it did get me thinking that, you know what, Forrest's record in the playoffs isn't amazing. Um, I just wanted to spend a bit of time today looking back over Forrest's playoff history. And you know what? It's, uh, it's, it's sobering reading. So um, Forrest has been in the playoffs four times. They've played eight matches. They've won one. They've drawn two. They've lost five. They've scored 13 goals and they've conceded 19 goals. Um, I may have got my maths wrong with those goals uh, for and against, but uh, I think we'll agree it's not a great record. Um, let's start off with Forrest's first playoff appearance. It's 2003 um, and Forrest finished sixth in the league under Paul Hart and uh, were drawn against Sheffield United. Uh, the first leg was, uh, it was, it was finally balanced actually after the first leg. Uh, the kind of main points to note, David Johnson scored for Forrest uh, but Forrest conceded a goal just a minute or two later to a free kick from Michael Brown. Um, the things that I remember about this match, in the first half, Dean Windus wasn't even booked for a tackle that would basically be a red card now. We went right through the back of Jim Brennan. Um, but right at the end, uh, Michael Dawson was sent off. Um, Stephen, who was the referee that day? It was one Mark Clattenburg, and it still, uh, uh, it still rankles with me to this day as well that he sent off Michael Dawson because the Dean Windass one in the first half, compare it to that, it just seems so unfair. Um, so, yeah, I've always, uh, always had a bit of a bee in my bonnet about Mr. Clattenburg ever since. So there you go. Not that I'm bitter or anything. 
well, I mean, I can, I can understand why it was given as a red card. And of course, in, in today's game, that the Dawson tackle was a red card all day long. But I think, as I say, if you compare it to the Windus tackle that wasn't, was barely even punished, that's what kind of got me. So Forrest appealed uh, the Dawson red card and they lost, unsurprisingly, which meant that John Thompson came into the back four. Now, that was a little bit of a surprise because generally John Olafielder was the other centre-half uh, through a good deal of the season. Uh, but the youngster was given his chance in Paul Hart's young team. Now, Maradon the Midlands, um, would you agree with me if I was to say, I'm going to say this out, out loud, okay? I've been watching Forest for 30-odd years, and this still rate, ranks as one of the most devastating nights I've ever had, one of the most devastating results I've ever witnessed as a Forest supporter. Would you agree with me? I absolutely would agree with you. Um, we both watched it together, if you remember. It uh, was, was it Sports Cafe? Is that what it's called? Sports Cafe, Sports, Sports Cafe, Bar, Glamorous West, not Leicester, London's Glamorous uh, West End. Mm. <laughs> And um, it, was, it was packed full of Forest fans actually that night, and it was a, it was a really good atmosphere. And we were two 0 up, and we were dreaming. I think we were we were we were booking our tickets for Wembley yeah. or Cardiff as it was then. And yeah. um, the 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 uh, to have it snatched away was very well, well devastating, as you say. I was I remember going to work the next day. I'm not proud of this now, but. I, it felt like somebody had died. I was sat there on my desk, unable to function, just listening to sad songs. <laughs> I was, I was no use to anybody. And my work, my work colleagues were like bringing me cups of tea. And I was like, "Come on, it's just more than this." And I just could not speak. And I've, I've never been as devastated after a football match as after, as I was that night. And let's 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 go through the, the the details. As you say, I think after forty eight minutes, um, sorry, fifty eight minutes, sorry, uh, Forest were two up. Uh, David Johnson had scored in the first half, capitalising on a poor clearance and uh, uh, making the most of it. Um, after fifty eight minutes, a absolutely uh, storming cross from Mathieu Louis Jean on the right hand side was volleyed home by Andy Reid, and just like in the first leg, just two minutes later. Uh, Sheffield United scored, and again, it was Michael Brown with a free kick. Now, something that a deflected is... free kick as well. It wasn't. It was a. It was really. It wasn't looking. Yeah, and that's the thing. I think it's it's really worth saying about this match. So that free kick took a big deflection off Forest legend Des Walker, um, and it completely wrong-footed Darren Ward in goal, and is a very lucky goal. And then. Eight minutes later, Steve Cabber scored. Cabber. The goal. Yeah, he scored the goal of his career. Um, let's let's think about what happened there. So there is a punt forward. He kicked it up with with one foot and totally bamboozled Des Walker with that. And then is 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 a bit reminiscent of Gaza's goal against Scotland in Euro '96, wasn't it, Stephen? It was just nowhere near as enjoyable as Gaza's. In Euro '96, um, I did think I thought, has, has he got? Um, it's probably me being the partisan Forest fan. I thought his goal and Paul Pesky Salidos were a bit fortunate, but you know, um, yeah, I, 
it was just the way that they clawed them, clawed themselves back into the game, Sheffield United, deflected free kick straight after we've gone 2-0 up and we're half an hour away from the playoff final. And then Steve Cavett pulls out this volley and it's 2-2 and, you know, we're going into extra time and suddenly Sheffield United have got the momentum with them and the tail's up and, you know, we got ourselves to extra time and that was the opportunity to regroup. But Well, I'll just interrupt you there. work out like that. Yeah, just to interrupt you there. I mean... um... Uh, right, so these playoff matches, <laughs> it was a bit odd because when I was doing the research for this, it's the first time I've watched any of them since the Knights themselves. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's just too painful to, to... And this one, certainly, I've never looked at any of the... I've never looked up the highlights or anything um, from from this one in in 17 years. Um, and the Cabba goal, yeah, uh, Cabba was a substitute. And then Paul Pesci-Solido came on as a substitute um, in extra time. In the meantime, just as we got into the last 10 minutes, um, Sheffield United had a young lad playing at uh, centre-half called Phil Jagielka. I wonder what happened to him. And he he came up with an absolutely amazing tackle um, when David Johnson was through on goal. And he, he, he hit it every chance it would have gone in. And Jagielka just came up with with a block out of nowhere, uh, which took us into extra time. And Pesci Solido, um, scourge of Forest. Um, it was a again, it was a punt up field, and Pesci Solido had the ball. And what was noticeable is that he had fresh legs, and Forest looked really tired. Married on the Midlands. Yeah, that, I was going to say that's what I'm similar to you. I've, I've never looked at these uh, playoff matches ever again. And, and I, to be honest, I completely blocked out most of the memories. I, I couldn't remember anything about the games <laughs> until, I, until I looked them up on uh, these last few days. And so it was, a, it was a surprise to see the Steve Cabba goal and the Pescalida Salida goal. Pescalida, Pescalida goal. Um, they were, uh, yeah, I mean, in their own way, they were good goals, but they. It did come from sort of having too much space and the Forest players looked like their legs had gone at the end of that match um, and Sheffield United were fresher. And um, as you alluded to, Maradon on the Midlands, you know, we were both living down south at the time and we went to a few matches um, in, the, uh, in, the, in the metropolis and in the environs. And I remember you and I, we went to the Easter Monday game away at Reading where... Paul Hart did make a few team changes, but the, t- the team had lost a lot of momentum in that last quarter of the season, hadn't they? And I think they were leggy. They, they were, yeah. Looking at the form before the playoffs, they, they had gone off, off the boil slightly um, and they weren't playing as, sort of, as well as they had done. But even, even so, that was, I mean, those, that, that Andy Reid second goal, it was a blinding goal. Yeah. And we just... If we just, I mean, it's it's the story of, of the playoffs all the way through, really. Just unable to keep hold of a lead, unable to kill a game off, unable to keep possession. If there's, if there's one lesson that we're going to learn going through every match, it's we, we sort of threw it away ourselves many times just with our inability to keep possession and and just kill teams off. I think it's um, I think it's a pattern we're going to see as we go through all of these playoff games capitulation because we seem to do it better than any other team in in playoff football yeah and um of course 
one of the things that was notable about Paul Hart's team is it it was is Paul Hart's young team. Um, you know, we had the average age of the team really wasn't that high. Um, and then by bringing in Thompson, when he could have brought in Hjelda, who was an experienced burly centre half, uh, that was another decision that Hart made to put his faith in youth. Um, now, having said that, we also had the oldest man on the pitch. Um, Des Walker was 38, 39 years old at the time. And as I said, he was unfortunate in that he went to block the Michael Brown free kick and it deflected in. He got bamboozled by Cabba's uh, flick and got beaten uh, for that second goal. And then possibly uh, as as if he needed anything to to cap the heartbreak, for Des to score another crucial own goal while playing for the Reds. Um, I mean... (sighs) It, it was that's that's heartbreaking and and let's just finish off uh, what happened in the match so that was a late late um own goal from Dez that was in the 117th minute and that made it 4-2 and that effectively ended the match but then two minutes later Robert Page the opposing skipper he scored an own goal after Darren Hookerby put the ball in into the danger area and then Forrest could still actually have equalised in stoppage time at the end of 120 minutes when Mathieu Louis-Jean got his head on the ball. And you just think, oh gosh, if Marlon Harewood had still been on the pitch or if it had been Huckabee or Johnson getting on the end of that ball, who knows? Um, so a couple of things that are worth noting about this. Um, firstly, I never realised until very, very recently when a Guardian journalist who supports Sheffield United um, was saying that this was one of his most memorable matches ever. And it has gone down in championship history as being one of the all-time great playoff matches. Um, But Sheffield United fans were delighted that Des was turned inside out because he used to play for Wednesday. I never knew that. Did you, Stephen? No, it's a bit of a coincidence, isn't it? Um, But yeah, it's... You know, it was just such a devastating night for Des, really. Of all the players on the pitch, he didn't deserve to be on the receiving end of an own goal and deflected free kicks going in off him. And he'd been so good at that season. And you do wonder what would have happened on the night had Forrest been able to play Dawson and Walker, the first the first choice pairing at centre-half whether Forrest would have been stronger defensively and managed to hold out. It's, that's something we'll never know. But for this, for a first kind of foray into the playoffs, this was absolutely devastating. It was, it was just complete roller coaster football. To be 30 minutes away from a playoff final and flying when Andy Reid scores to suddenly crashing back down to earth how we did, it, it was heartbreaking. And then knowing what, what came next where, you know, we couldn't keep that team together and players started to move on and we didn't keep Darren Huckabee, for example, for the following season. And that, that team broke up and it just, yeah, that team just should have gone up and consolidated and, you know, the story would have been very different. Exactly. And Married on the Midlands, we're talking about devastation and heartbreak. And, um, we were watching it in that sports bar in London and the night ended with David Johnson and Des Walker in tears on the camera. And we were with um, 
my my flatmate at the time who was Spanish, who's a Real Madrid fan. And even he started crying when he saw David Johnson bawling his eyes out on the pitch. Um, and you talked about your experience of, of going to work the next day. I went to work the next day and even the Leicester fan at work, never mind all the Londoners, they were all just, oh my God, you're so unlucky. And it really added to the feeling that, oh, it could have been... If if the away goals rule rule existed in the playoffs, Forest would have been through in this game, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, is is that sort of wide eyed uh, youthful optimism we had? I think, and just we had sort of our moral superiority that during that season because oh, we played such brilliant football under Paul Park. We, we used to lord it over fans of other clubs. Like, yeah, of course, well, we play. Uh, almost total football with Paul Hart. We've, we brought the players in from the youth team. They've grown up together and we pass it around and it's complete possession football. And we were, we were, we, <laughs> we were so full of ourselves in a way, but rightfully so. We were an amazing team. And it just, it was the, it was the loss of that potential, the, the breakup of the team and um, just the moral victory it would have had for having a team that wasn't put together with millions and millions of pounds. It was just, everything seemed to be going in the right direction. And it seemed particularly cruel for it to sort of fall away like that in the last few minutes. Absolutely. So I think we can, we can agree that that was, it could have all been so different and it was so, so, I mean, I can't, I can't use any other word other than devastating, not just because we were younger then, but I think that really was the big chance for Forrest to, to re-establish themselves after a few years out of the Premier League under this, this, this manager who, who had worked so, so much magic at Forrest and the players who'd come through the system. Um, and yet, it, as you said, Stephen, it just wasn't to be. Um, and if we go from the sublime to the ridiculous... Uh, we will do that in just a minute after we hear about something a whole lot more wholesome from Jeremy. Thanks for listening to the Forest Ramble podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review on your podcast provider as this helps other Forest supporters find our content. Now on with the pod. The Forest Ramble sketch by Jeremy Davis. The club's history is largely incidental to our decision to support it. It's generally in the here and now that an attachment forms, even when that history is as glorious and even unique as Forrest's. But it swiftly becomes pretty central to our identity as Forest fans that our club, twice, won the European Cup, especially in conversation with Leicester fans. The first of those victories in 1979 has been endlessly replayed, the goal that won the second, scored by John Robertson against Kevin Keegan's Hamburg, is sometimes a little overshadowed. Perhaps it's as true in football as in certain other areas of life that you always remember your first time. Beating the team from West Germany was arguably even more of a feat, and the goal that won it encapsulated the Clough philosophy. Skill, yes, but built on hard work and determination. Having broken up a Hamburg attack, Forrest worked the ball to left-back Frank Gray, who makes a surging run through the centre and plays it forward where it's nicked away from Gary Mills and breaks to Robbo. You can see at this point why Clough loved his little fat lad, because he predicted before the match that he would turn right-back Manny Kaltz inside out, and he followed his manager's instructions to the letter, doing his impersonation of a knight on a chessboard with a shuffle forward and then a skip to the side. Gary Bertles does a beautiful bit of ugly stuff to get the ball back to him, and Robertson hurdles a sliding tackle from Keegan, of all people, and arrows a right-footer into the bottom corner. 
As a magnificent up yours to football's aristocracy, it was particularly brilliant that the move involved Larry Lloyd, Martin O'Neill, Gray, Robbo and Bertles, two Englishmen, two Scotsmen and an Irishman. It sounds like the setup for a very 1970s joke, but Forrest were laughing. Thanks very much, Jeremy. And uh, we've got more memorable goals to come on the Forest Rumble podcast over the next few weeks. Now, uh, just before we uh, went to that little interlude, I did mention um, that in terms of playoffs, we we're going from the sublime under Paul Hart, which didn't quite work out, to the ridiculous. And the League One playoffs in 2007 against Yeovil can only be described as as ridiculous, surely. Um, Let's start off with the first leg, which was an away match down at Hewish Park and Forrest won 2-0 away. And you know what? You think that was actually pretty comfortable. But but Stephen, um, I don't know how well you remember this, but Forrest weren't great in that match. And frankly, they did well to keep a clean sheet and get two goals away from home. They did. It was a, um, it was a professional job, actually. When, when you consider it to be away to a, you know, a Yeovil team uh, that could play good football. We knew they could, but Forrest were professional and came out with a 2-0 win, uh, two penalties. And the second penalty scored, I think, if you, if you asked a Forrest fan, or most Forrest fans, who scored in that game, Chris Commons, you wouldn't be surprised by, but James Perch converting from the penalty spot. I don't think many people would remember that, but he did, and he did in the 90th minute. And it was actually a crucial penalty because that second goal, we thought, would give us uh, a comfortable advantage for the second leg. But, yeah. you know, Forrest in the playoffs, perhaps we should have, should have known it wasn't going to be so simple. So City ground, more or less sold out for, for, the, for the second leg. And basically, we all turned up thinking that Forrest would just Finish the finish the job off. Stay professional, keep it tight. See the see the tie out, and you're at Wembley. Job done. Okay. Uh, so at the end, Yeovil of, had other ideas though. Yeah, at the end of the first leg, um, Yeovil's boss, Nottingham Forest supporting Russell Slade, said, "I don't know how we can get on the front foot next week any more than we did tonight, but that is what we have to do. We have to regroup and come up with a game plan and be positive. And you know what?" Didn't they just do that? Because some lad called Aaron Davis was playing on the left wing for Yeovil in these matches. And after 22 minutes, he put Yeovil in front on the night and brought it to 2-1 on aggregate. Um, Married on the Midlands, what do you remember about this night? Um, I just seem to remember Yeovil just tearing through the forward defence. It was Aaron Davies especially just running at them, running at them, running at them and scoring at will. It's like, I was, uh, for, again, I remember pretty, no, no real details of the match, but just I just remember Yeovil just cutting through us at will and, and just seemed to score loads and loads of goals. Um, it's just, but looking, looking back, I'd forgotten that we'd won the first leg 2-0. I thought it was 1-0. I remember the Chris Commons penalty. I've completely forgotten about the second one, so it makes me feel even worse. I mean, to be 2 0 up. If somebody had said to us, okay, you've got a two, two goal head start and you're playing Yeovil, and then you, that's all you, all you have to do is stay, stay two, a goal ahead and you're through. 
and we would have taken it. And it was such a big shock. It was a, a really terrible, terrible shock. Okay, let's talk about the mechanics of 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 the match because, um, as you say, it was um, Aaron Davis. He scored after twenty two minutes, and he seemed to be, as you said, he just he just tore us apart. Um, it was probably the best game of his career and the first goal he scored against us was an absolute belter he picked the ball up on the halfway line ran at us cut inside and shot into the bottom corner and you know what then you thought okay but it's okay especially when after two minutes in the second half Scott Doby scored his first goal of the entire season to make it (laughs) one all on the night and three one to Forest and you think that's okay, isn't it? That's okay. Yeah, we were two goals up with nine minutes to go. Yeah. <laughs> and, right, Stephen. Stephen, again, watching the highlights, which I, mm. I didn't, I didn't, I knew it was an Alan Wright own goal. I didn't really see what happened on the night because I was in the Trent end and it was at the far end. Talk us through the own goal because it's one of the most unfortunate own goals I think um, you, you'll see a Forest player ever score. So, in the, as I was saying with the um, Sheffield United game where a deflected free kick kind of helped swing the momentum back in Sheffield United's favour. Def- an own goal here from Alan Wright did exactly the same for Yeovil. It was, um, I forget the name of the Yeovil player, he was on the edge of the box and he hits a shot, bending shot to the far corner. It hits the post. Alan Wright is stood on the edge of the penalty area. So he's 18 yards out. The ball comes back off the pot comes back off the post, hits Alan Wright, who's the smallest player on the pitch, by the way, hits him on the head and rolls into the net to the opposite side where Paul Smith has tried to get back up from diving to try and save the initial shot. So a complete a complete fluke of a goal. But what that did was just give Yeovil a sniff of hope where we were two goals up with nine minutes to go and you know, looking fairly comfortable, looking like we were going to get to to Wembley. Suddenly, Yeovil have a sniff of hope. And then five minutes later, Marcus Stewart pops up with a header in the box at the back post. And suddenly, Yeovil have have levelled the tie and we're going into extra time. And it was just, it was just unbelievable watching it. I remember being, in fact, I remember I was in the Brian Clough upper and I was, more or less in line with the I think I seem to remember being in line with the edge of the penalty area so I had a good view for the own goal and then the ensuing carnage when Yeovil started scoring for fun which uh, you know it's just yeah you just couldn't believe what I was seeing and um, I think it's worth saying that um, by the time we got to extra time Forrest were down to 10 men because David Prutton had come on as a sub for Lewis McGugan after just after an hour and two really, really cheap bookings, uh, the second of which was just before the end of 90 minutes, and which meant we had to play all of extra time, a man down. And you know what? Yeovil took full advantage of it, didn't they, Stephen? Yeah, I just remember that. It was just a kamikaze performance from Prutton. I, I don't know what he'd be... I don't know what had got into his head before the game. He just came on like a man possessed. And picking cards up and then getting himself sent off at the time when we really needed we needed him and a full complement of players. And Yeovil, to their credit, took advantage of it. And 
in extra time. I think it was ex-Derby player Lee Morris mm-hmm. um, capitalising on a really bad error from Wes Morgan, uh, who at this point certainly didn't look like a Premier League winning captain. Uh, skewed a clearance, miscontrolled the ball and allowed Morris to run in and score. And suddenly now Yeovil were in front for the first time in the tie and Boris down to 10 men, it was it was looking as good as over. And I think it's worth pointing out as well, um, it wasn't just the players who were losing their heads, players like Crutton and, and Wes Morgan. Wes had only been on the pitch for a few minutes because Colin Caldwood, I think, had lost his head. Um, before the match, uh, Grant Holt was only half fit, so he was, he was on the bench. And he came on for Scott Dobie um, with 15 minutes to go. And you think, that's fine, OK. Bring on a big, strong front man hold the ball up, that kind of thing. With five minutes of normal time to go, Calderwood brought off uh, the, his strike partner, Jack Lester, and put on Wes Morgan. He tried to shore it up and go five at the back and one up front to try and preserve the result, which is fine if it weren't for the fact that we then conceded that Marcus Stewart goal. So all of a sudden, we were playing with five defenders, two in midfield and one up front. Um, and we were we had to try and get back in the game. Um, and then, of course, uh, straight after the Morris goal, to Forrest's credit, Gary Holt, whose Forrest career never took off, he suddenly appeared on the edge of the box, got onto a Grant Holt knockdown and volleyed it into the bottom corner. Probably his best moment in a Forrest shirt ever. Yeah, it was, a, it was an incredible moment. I just remember... The guy who I was, who I was sat next to, I'd never met him before in my life. Um, I haven't seen him since. He, when that Grant, uh, that Gary Holt shot went in, celebrating, he lifted me up on his shoulders. <laughs> well, I'm giving it the fist bump. Like, get in, come on! <laughs> this guy who I'd never met before. Like, it was just, it, 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 it was pure relief more than anything. But it was absolutely bonkers. But then all of a sudden, okay, we're level again. It's it's game on now. What you know? Can we can we maybe win this thing, or do we go to penalties? But at the very least, we're still in the game and with a chance. Okay, and then something else changed, which was that uh, Alan Wright he was injured. He got himself injured. He could barely he could barely run. He could barely walk, and so he ended up just. We couldn't take him off because we had no more subs. We'd already lost a man, so he was just limping about in the middle of the park. I think. Um, James Perch, I think, just dropped in to fill in at left back. Um, or maybe John Curtis and, 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 and Luke Chambers went to right back. Something like that, anyway. Uh, but even then, you're kind of going, oh, gosh, we're down to nine men. We are, it's four all, but we're looking, oh, and, and mentally as well, I think, I think that was it. Everything had gone. And so it was Aaron Davis again with a goal on the hun- in the 109th minute. Who, uh, who then settled the tie. Um, it was an incredible night, really. And fair play to Yeovil, because they absolutely deserved it. Um, Colin Caldwell said afterwards, I feel, I feel hugely deflated and disappointed. We've made poor decisions throughout the game, and Yeovil exploited that to the full. The better side won. Tremendous credit to them, because they put in an excellent performance, even though we had a really bad game. Maradon the Midlands, the other thing that I remember from that match is anger. 
anger from Forest fans towards Calderwood, towards the club, towards the players, but also a tremendous round of applause for the Oval players as they left the pitch. Yeah, I do. Yeah, Forest fans were, were very gracious um, towards the Oval fans. I, I, um, as I said before, the, the only thing I can remember apart from Aaron Davies is after that last goal, he's crumpled in my seat and hung my head on my dad's shoulder who sat next to me and just thought, oh, even though I was a grown man nearly at the age of 30. But, um, yeah, um, yeah, we, I'm, I'm sure you applauded Yovelov, but I read back that there's people shouting for Stuart Pearce to come in as manager. It's like psycho, psycho. At the end of the match, it, was, it turned so poisonous, the atmosphere. I don't remember that myself, to be honest with you. But, yeah, it was a, odd, odd, a very, very odd night. And I, rem- I remember a lot of anger. I don't remember the chance for Stuart Pearce, but um, I remember the anger. And I also remember a very conciliatory interview. Nigel Doughty didn't give many interviews, and certainly not post-match. But he went on the radio and he did say, things haven't gone well tonight. Please don't panic. I understand you're angry. I understand you're not happy, but stick with us. And in fairness, you know, the next season against Yeovil um, at home, oddly enough, things things did eventually somehow over the course of 46 games lead to Forrest getting back out of League One. Um, so, it, it, but it was a, a remarkable night for so many reasons. And I just have to give credit to Yeovil. They, they exploited every... every Chink in Forest's armour that night. Right, let's move on to 2010. Forest were third in the league. Again, they've fallen away ever so slightly, especially since that remarkable match against West Brom that Stephen talked about in our most recent podcast. The away leg, Stephen, talk us through that. Yeah, so what I remember about Blackpool in the playoffs was that a few weeks before we'd gone up to Bloomfield Road for a regular league game. Um, I think we'd more or less assured ourselves of a playoff place um, and we couldn't catch second anyway. It was We were definitely in the playoffs um, by a comfortable margin. So we went to Blackpool and Put out a weakened team, you know, and uh, and paid for it. We lost. Blackpool at this stage were not in the playoffs, um, but we lost that league game. Blackpool were on a run, and on the final day of the league season, they crept into sixth place and into the playoffs. I think they just, in the end, they just pipped Swansea, if I remember rightly. So Blackpool come into the playoffs with nothing to lose, with play- all the form behind them. But saying that. We go to Bloomfield Road for the first leg and take the lead through Chris Cohen. And the, the volley he scores is unbelievable. Uh, the ball, I think it's a Lee Camp clearance. The ball gets flicked on. It goes to Raddy Maescu, sort of knocks it to Chris Cohen, who's coming in from the left-hand side. And from the edge of the penalty area, hits this bending, dipping volley that loops up and over the keeper. And we're in front early on in the playoffs, and you're thinking, here we go. Well, Billy Davis is thinking, job done. <laughs> job done, yeah. Um, and, you know, you're thinking, right, let's have it now. We're in front, and let's let's hang on. But didn't happen. Uh, 
I think for Leicester, I remember Blackpool in this game, sort of the Charlie Adam and David Vaughan were were difficult to play against in particular. And uh, I, I believe it was Keith Southern ball dropped to him in in, in the uh, in the first half in the box, and he stuck it away, and it was one one, which on the face of it wouldn't have been a bad result for us away at Blackpool, but. In the end, uh, Charlie Adam from the penalty spot in the second half made it 2-1 and we lost. But despite that, it still felt like a result that could be overturned. Yeah, and like like you say, in the first half, you know, sure, Blackpool equalised, but there's a good spell of about 20 minutes when it looked as though Forrest should really, really kind of make the match their own. They could, you know, terrible pitch. McKenna was back after having been out with a knee injury for for two months or something like that. And then Cohen scored that goal after 15-odd minutes. And Cohen nearly scored an equaliser. He was doing that thing of trying to drive Forrest forward. He cut in from the right wing, hit it from 25 yards, and it needed a, a, a really good save um, in the bottom corner from Matt Jilks to turn that around. If it had been 2-2, I think that's not necessarily the results, but the fact that Forrest would have scored in, in stoppage time could have seen a bit of momentum swing Forrest's way. Um, but nonetheless, you think, OK, we've got the home leg to go. We're pretty confident. Um, and also as well, they made a tactical change. So rather than the 4-5-1 from the away leg, they brought Robert Earnshaw in. Uh, for the second leg and uh, little Robbie Earnshaw he actually scored uh, a goal to put Forrest in front after just seven minutes uh, of that second leg at Maradon the Midlands talk us through the rest of the match or as much as you remember of it yeah well um, yeah after you after the Robbie Earnshaw goal I thought we were, I thought well we were on our way here um, looking back at the re- doing a bit of research we we hadn't conceded a league goal at home for eight matches before that game. So I was thinking, there we go. We've got to get one more goal, we're through. Um, but it didn't quite work out that way. Um, it's just uh, another one of those nights where our defence just completely let us down for just uncharacteristically just fell apart for some reason. And... Um... There were two turning points, I think. So, obviously, the equaliser on the night from DJ Campbell is obviously important in terms of putting Blackpool back in the match. But then the other turning point was on 69 minutes, some guy called Stephen Dobby came on for Blackpool as a sub. And then he scored two minutes later and created two more so that DJ Campbell could get his his hat-trick. You know, Forrest, by that point, had... Got another goal through little Robbie Earnshaw. So again, you think on the on the balance of play after sixty six minutes, you think Forest should they're at home, they should be able to put this away, but they didn't, and we were undone by a combination of Dobby and Campbell, Stephen. Yes, and the uh, and yes again, a deflected goal swung the momentum back in the opposition favour. I'm, it's uh, making it sound like a conspiracy, but if you watch the highlights, Stephen Dobby, the ball comes to him about 25 yards out. He hits a shot and it deflects off Kelvin Wilson. Lee Camp is completely wrong-footed. Um, and that goal goes in five minutes after Boris go 2-1 up on the night. Earnshaw smashes home in front of the Trent end. And 
we're level on aggregate. Suddenly, that goal from Dobby goes in and Forrest collapse all over again. So, I mean, DJ Campbell had the game of his life in this in this match, scoring a hat-trick and just, you're just wondering where the hell did that come from? You know, this sort of second-rate championship striker turned into Ronaldo for the evening and lived with him. Uh, and he scored again, so Blackpool 4-2 up on the night. Uh, 5-3 up on aggregate um, and completely out of sight. And Dele Adebola did get a goal on the night, which made the score on the night 4-3 to Blackpool. But it was so late on. We're looking at it on on the highlights. You can see that even the fans aren't bothering to celebrate. Um, But once again, I think credit to Forest fans because... They gave the Blackpool players an absolute ovation because they knew that Blackpool had once, just like Yeovil a few years before, had pulled out an amazing performance that, frankly, they deserved the victory. Um, and whatever Forest shortcomings, we had to hand it to them. And of course, Blackpool then went on to, to, to win the playoffs and, and, and go on and spend spend time in the Premier League, um, you know, uh, under Ian Holloway. It was, it was, it was quite, quite the story for them, really. Yeah, yeah, they were good value for it in the end, going up, and they they were a good addition to the Premier League for the time they were there. But it also comes back to the whole the whole uh, sort of thing of Forest finding a way of shooting themselves in the foot. So going to Blackpool initially with a weakened team, that's three points that Blackpool might not have got otherwise. Blackpool end up in the playoffs. They play Forest. Um, and I, I do. I seem to remember as well. There was a few years ago. One of the Blackpool players came out and spoke about that game, the first game at Bloomfield Road, where Billy Davis was sort of saying, "Well, when you know, we'll get them back to our place and we'll turn them over." You know, and this idea that Forest in the playoffs, we just we keep finding a way of shooting ourselves in the foot. Well, when we've got the game, and when we're there, we just seem to find a way of, of knackering it all up time and again. So the story, for those of you who don't know it, is that uh, when Forrest went to Bloomfield Road and played that weakened team in the regular season, um, and Billy Davis was apparently there saying, don't worry, lads, it's job done. Blackpool will make the playoffs and we'll beat them there. And so he basically gave the Blackpool team talk for both legs way before the playoffs even happened. So, so job done. Yeah. Job done. Um, what I do remember, actually, about that, the, the Blackpool home leg, I think that's the loudest I've heard the city ground for a long time. It was, it was a, an almost deafening atmosphere. I think because we'd been so good at home all season, we, we felt especially confident having the second leg at home and only needing to turn around a goal deficit. We ha- and we had every right to be confident. I don't think there was any arrogance behind it. You know, Forrest have been very, very yeah. good at home that season. So if just- you look at, yeah, if you look at the two teams as well, I mean, we player for player, we had the much better team. We had some really good players in that in that squad. Um, from like Kelvin Wilson at the back, um, Blackstock, Earnshaw, McKenna, Anderson, even coming on, showing great great speed on the wings Majewski we were a good team we had every right to be confident and it, and it was we, I'm, 
we did all think, oh, it's just little old Blackpool. I'm sure we can win this. It's just uh, wasn't to be, I'm afraid. Uh, yeah, so uh, so Ian Holloway in his post-match interview are still standing on the pitch while the Blackpool players were celebrating, saying people are saying that I'm a joker and we're just not we're not to be taken seriously. Well, I hope people take us seriously now. And and fair play, he was he and they were good value for it in the end. I've just remembered what the other thing was that I forgot, which is that uh, we played Blackpool four times that season and we lost every single match. <laughs> Let's move on to 2011, uh, one year later, and Forrest finished sixth in the league, drawing Swansea in the playoffs. Um, Stephen, is it fair to say that Forrest lost the playoff semi-finals after two minutes of the home leg when Neil Taylor was sent off for a high studs-up challenge on Lewis McGugan? Uh, you, you can definitely make a claim for that. Um, it was... A, it was a, and a stonewall red card, no doubt about it. It was a, a horrendous tackle. Um, but what it did do was kind of focus the Swansea minds. They they sat in for a draw, but they kept the ball very, very well. And full credit to them on the night. They were excellent. To to keep the score at nil-nil and come away with a result, having pretty much played the entire game a man down, uh, full credit to them. Um that's not to say, though, that Forrest didn't have their opportunities. I remember second half, Forrest should have had a penalty. Uh, Chris Cohen having a shot at goal, and I think it, might, I think it was Alan Tate who sort of put his, put his arms up to block it, and it did hit the arm, but the referee didn't give it. So no VAR back then, of course. It was, we just had to play on. And then Earnshaw had a goal disallowed in front of the Trent end, and, um, you know, there were some chances that Forrest had and they, they couldn't put them away. Um, but what I do remember about that game, which kind of soured it for me, was that the Swansea fans were celebrating like they'd won at the end and perhaps coming playing with 10 men and getting a draw, yeah, they, they did very well. But, you know, I, I, didn't, I thought they were a little bit kind of premature in, in the way they celebrated, still with another game to play at the Liberty a few days later. Well, as it turns out, they weren't being premature. They were they, they, like as 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 away fans, you're bound to celebrate getting that good result with ten men. Um, now, married on the Midlands, um, the second leg, so it's nil nil, finally balanced, and Billy Davis makes four changes to his team, and amongst those, he drops little Robbie Earnshaw, and he starts with. Um, with a front two of Marcus Tudgay and David McGoldrick, um, I mean, was that was that was that a wise move? In hindsight, no. Um, but I think we, he, he got into the habit of chopping and changing the front players a lot in the last few weeks of the season. He brought in Chris Boyd on loan from Middlesbrough. Um, it was meant to be maybe the, the signing that pushes us over the line. And we were excited when he came in because he had an amazing goal-scoring record in Scotland. Um, and he was maybe thought he'd, he'd lead a, our charge to promotion. But I did think it disrupted things in the end. They just We weren't as slick as we were the previous season. We weren't playing as, as footballers as, as nicely as we were. And we just seemed, we were just a, a bit of a weaker team all round. I think Will, Kelvin Wilson had gone... Uh, Dexter Blackstock had suffered that terrible injury. He was out. 
Um, I was surprised looking back at the team sheet. Paul McKenna was out of this game. Moosey came in for him. So looking back at it, we're looking at this line. I mean, it's not the strongest looking lineup, but it's maybe not such a surprise that we did end up losing the second leg. I mean, the, going back to the first leg, if there's one team you didn't want to, who could cope really well with just 10 men, were Swansea because they just kept ball for fun. They had possession play all the way through. That's the, it was a trademark of the Brendan Rodgers side. Um, so that did really kill us, that, that first leg. Yeah, and I mean, having said that, early on in the match, uh, the second leg that is, Nathan Tyson, who's playing on the right wing with Lewis McGugan on the left wing, he made a really amazing break, um, along with his goal against Man City in the FA Cup. <laughs> I remember you and I saying, that's probably his finest contribution in a Forest shirt in all these years. Um, and, and and one of his last, is his last match for Forest, that was. Um, and then from that break, David McGoldrick hit the bar pretty early on in the match and we're thinking okay maybe maybe we can do this maybe we can do this but after 28 minutes uh Leon Britton who had only scored one goal in the previous three years and that was the week before the uh, the playoffs he cuts inside from left hand side it's far too easy for him to get a shot away he cut inside and on his weaker left foot put the ball into the far corner and then some bloke called Stephen Dobby scored (laughs) Scored for Swansea, um, and he seemed familiar for some reason, didn't he, Stephen? Yeah, yeah, he was getting a bit of a habit for scoring against Forest, wasn't he? And uh, he he broke through, put the ball away, and it was two 0 and it was yeah, it, it was just looking like a daunting task to try and turn this around. Um, so we go in at half time, two 0 up, two um, 0 down. Sorry, uh, but credit. To, if it was Billy Davis or the team, whatever was said at half time worked because Forrest came out in the second half and they were all over Swansea, threw everything at them. And I, I remember, I think it was quite early on in the second half, Lewis McGugan hammering a free kick against the bar. And, you know, we started to pile forward and create chances. But it was only when Robert Earnshaw finally came on that we had some real cutting edge. Yeah. And it was Earnshaw who scored, of course. Yeah, little Robbie Earnshaw was brought... Our best striker came on with 12 minutes to go, scored two minutes later, and then hit the post. So, I mean, you can only think what might have been if he'd been on earlier on in the match or had started the, started the game. And all of a sudden, Forrest were back in it, 2-1, they hit the post in the last few minutes. And so, in stoppage time, Lee Camp goes up for a corner. What happens next, Maradon in the Midlands? Oh, it was the uh, Darren Prattley goal, wasn't it? Certainly he, um, he lobbed it in. Yeah, he lobbed it in from a distance, and it was uh, all over. I'm afraid, and uh, sparked scenes of pitch invasions and Brendan Rodgers gloating and all sorts <laughs> of savoury things. Yes, and of all the players to score as well, there was a real kind of irony that it was Darren Prattley given the will we will he won't he sign saga alongside Peter Whittingham. Um, and we didn't sign Prattley in the end. Surprise, surprise, you know, transfer acquisition panel allegedly and all that. Uh, we didn't sign Darren Prattley and he put the final nail in the Forest coffin for that season. I also remember in this game, I'm sure we had a big penalty shout in the second half as well. And I think it was Earnshaw again in that, 
in that 10 minutes he was on the pitch, he, he was creating havoc. And, you know, you can only wonder what was going through Billy Davis's head to not bring him on sooner. I mean, I bringing up the teams here, I didn't realise it was 78 minutes when he came on. I thought it was earlier, but so much happened after Earnshaw came on the pitch that, you know, leaving him on the bench for as long as we did or not starting him in the first place seems now, looking back, a really foolish decision. And again, another player who whose final match it was in a red shirt, um, rightly or wrongly. Um, I think it's fair to say that, to be honest, when... Swansea got that second goal and Stephen Dobby scored it, that it, it kind of felt a bit inevitable. And so, as with so many of those other games against Sheffield United, against um, particularly, you know, against Yeovil, as you'd mentioned, when we got back in the game with that Gary Holt goal, um, little Robbie Earnshaw coming on and scoring and then hitting the post. It's always the hope that kills you, isn't it, Maradon, the Midlands? It is, it is. And it just goes to show just in those one-off games, it's a, 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 a small bit of bad luck just goes against you. I think looking back at the deflected goals, looking back at the amount of times we've hit the post. And over a season, they, they turn, sort of even themselves out. But over a, a, a one-off game like that, it really kills you. But we, we have been unlucky down the years, but it's just... If there's one lesson that I've taken from all of the looking through the highlights again for the last few games, it's just being unable to just keep possession past the ball. Even even when we were a good passing side, it just let us down completely. And on those occasions, we just gave the ball away against Blackpool, gave the ball away against Sheffield United, gave it away against Yeovil. And it's just, um, if there's one thing that worries me about this upcoming potential playoff campaign is that we've been so poor in possession this season that it it just it rang alarm bells for me it just we're going to be up against good teams and it's just a one-off game or, or even a double a two-legged game it's a long time to sort of keep on giving the ball away again and again and again against good players and good opposition um so that that's one thing that worries me on on the plus side um, we've had good passing playing teams in the past at Forest and it's not helped us so maybe being a dogged 1-0 sort of team may just win us through this time who knows Okay and Stephen very briefly Yeah and I think if you look at the away form this season how good we've been on the road and Forest have looked most of the time they've looked solid especially on the road and that would fill me with confidence going into a playoff game that you know, it's probably been a bit, we're more used to playing well away from home. And and if we do get a second leg away, we might be able to ride games out a bit better, a bit more comfortably and, and see those games out and potentially win them. Um, and that might, you know, that kind of doggedness that's been instilled into the team by Sabri, it might stand us in good stead when we have those moments in games where, Perhaps we've conceded a goal in a playoff, but we need to not concede another, and we need to halt the opposition momentum. So, I'd be I'd I'd be a little bit more confident going into the playoffs this time around with this group of players and with Sabri as manager. Okay, so thank you very much to Stephen Topless to the Maradon the Midlands and to Jeremy Davis for your contributions. Uh, keep listening to the Forest Ramble podcast. Keep uh, Subscribe to us via your podcast provider. Keep an eye on our social media and so on, because we're going to be bringing some memorable goals over the next few weeks. 
In the meantime, thanks for joining us and stay safe. The History of the Atlantic World is a long-form history show that tells a tragic tale of conquistadors, war, slavery, and genocide. But within the tragedy of life lay the inspirational stories of revolutionaries, escaped slaves, and pirates. I'm Jesse Wiest, your allegedly hilarious host, and this story begins in 1492, with the tale of someone so infamous you already know his name. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.